Ladies and gentlemen, we are now live. Welcome back to another podcast. Today, I am joined on International Women's Day, no less. Um, unfortunately, a male guest. I promise we have some great female ones coming up. But we're joined today by Simpa Carter, a good friend of mine from the UK, uh, probably one of the most well-known activists in the UK. Um, he's done so much work for the community. He has his own podcast, very knowledgeable about the plant. And if you're in the UK and you've been talking about cannabis in the community, you've probably come across this guy. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Thanks for having me on, man. And thank you for a great introduction there. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. You've, uh, you've done a lot for the scene. I'd like to think so. I'd, I'd like to think so. Um, and I do hope I can provide some, <clears throat> I guess, feminine energy on International Women's Day today. Um, yeah, it's, I, I've been involved in this a good nearly, nearly seven years, I suppose. And from running sort of Durham City Cannabis Club and being actively involved in sort of various movements, you know, I've led the, the UK's uh, Global Cannabis March every May for the past several years. And uh, yeah, I've been intimately involved in sort of the creation and running of a lot of events and projects uh, and movements here in the UK, just basically trying to, well, frankly, end the war, you know, give us the space to, to operate and to live freely and to, well, for myself, quite selfishly, to figure out what I want to do with my life. You know what I mean? At the minute, I'm just fighting for the right to exist and to live a, a green life as I see fit, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have a misconception that people enjoy necessarily being an activist or it gives them some kind of pleasure when in fact it's, you know, just a, a position that you find untenable and it's something that is so bad or affects your life in such a negative way that you essentially boil it down to thinking, well, I have no choice other than to spend all my time and effort trying to change this thing. I don't want to be here doing this. I don't want all these people making assumptions about who I am and the beliefs that I have, et cetera, et cetera. Um, would you, would you, do you relate to that? Yeah, in, entirely, entirely. I think anyone that as it were, chooses to pick up the mantle, um, maybe does so because they see the positive sides of activism. They see the infamy, the notoriety, uh, the camaraderie, the, the celebration, the, uh, you know, that kind of, I don't want to say adornment, but the appreciation and respect of your, of your community and your peers and uh, people, they want that in their own lives. And I, I understand that entirely. And I kind of, I guess, forget or don't really appreciate often that I carry that opinion to others because I'm so busy just trying to make sense of it in my own head. I think it, activists that then are committed to lifelong causes are people that they hit a, a tipping point, a crucial point in their lives where it is better for them to live genuinely speaking their truth and living their truth than any other false reality could comfort them and pacify them away from that fight. And so I think for all it can look an attractive proposition, uh, for lack of a better wording, a career activist or an ac a career in activism is not all it's cracked up to be at all. It's it's lonely. It's quite scary. It's full of uncertainty. It's um, yeah, it's a, a, a difficult life path. But I think uh, a trajectory some of us are either kind of thrust and forced upon, and others make that choice because, as you said, they they see no other other option or alternative. And do you think that? 
activists ever get the recognition that they perhaps deserve in their lifetimes? Because we look back, you know, um, notable figures and events in history that maybe ended segregation, maybe gave women uh, their, their rights, rights to vote, uh, rights to work. It seems like a lot of the time, these people were not perceived favorably by society. And it's not until now we look back and we say, wow, those brave, courageous, great people, you know, would we have supported or demonized them if, if they were alive during our current time? This is it. You are seeing with the um, critical race theory debate uh, down on the southern borders, in, for your southern borders, as it were, in America at the minute, and this great opposition and people using, say, Martin Luther King quotes and that out of context and the way that they will glorify a certain activist or a certain act by an activist because it led to an outcome that they deem useful to them that they appreciate that is on their political spectrum and toward their their own persuasion but i think ultimately the best and the the, the most unsung activists and the ones whose names are never heard are the people who do small acts every day that, that add up to changing thousands of lives and they never think of themselves as an activist they would never ascribe that label i'll admit it's a, it's a term that I, I i struggle with often myself because I feel I could be more active. I'm not inactive <laughs> as an activist, but I, I definitely could always be doing more. And I think it's, we almost need to address that kind of, I don't want to say like almost Messiah. We're waiting for a Messiah. We're waiting for these certain bunch of activists that will rise and lead us forward when actually the small actions of us all together do, do far more good and can have far more of a, a meaningful impact. They're just never movie worthy it's not a, a, a script or a narrative that, that somebody would write to make an epic story it is the boring mundane reality of people that are just seeing a problem and helping they are hearing a lie and speaking truth and i think that they are the activists that we'll never get to know they are the advocates and the champions anyone that is brave enough to speak up for a cause no matter that cause if you truly believe it in your heart then you are a champion of it and I, I go back to the, the thing that we all had during the Bush era of one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And ultimately, the difference between that is the perception either of the, the media and the mainstream or it is whoever writes history. So there have been many struggles where there have been great people who have fought for their cause, but because their cause didn't win social favor, they were considered pariahs or never even discussed again. Yet they lived passionately, truthfully, and they saw a, a wrong and they wanted to to write it and it's yeah i think those are the people far more than myself or others that are yeah we're committed to this and doing what we're doing publicly and taking the risks we do but i'm still getting a reward for that at some degree i get to have a podcast i get to have all these wonderful conversations and these interactions i get to have that acclaim i get to have that um sort of respect from my community but on the other side of it there are people like i said that will will never know their names they will they will die unknown but having done far more than i could ever do mm. it's a nice way to break it down uh when you mention small acts speaking your truth these things these things are accessible the things that every individual can do and in the past few years certainly I've, I've looked at the world and think holy shit like this is this is a mess as i'm sure a lot of us have have uh, seen and been feeling and it's like okay well what do i do like how do i help and that thought is so overwhelming that it just leads you to inaction. 
And then you feel guilty as well. Like I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing enough. And it's this recursive cycle almost. And in the last few years, in the last year before COVID, I was, I was vocal about cannabis, um, psychedelics, all of, all of these kind of things. And more recently, uh, about the same kind of problems, essentially, with pharmaceutical companies um, having too much power, too much influence over government, over regulatory bodies. You know, th these are problems that um, some of us have seen. They are there. They are documented. They've been this way for a very long time. They've been getting worse overall. And so the pandemic, you know, these things happening hasn't been new. Um, it's just been in a new setting. And so... I've been quite vocal about it, but it's, it's very much if we thought like cannabis was controversial and talking about that, you know, the, the, the anti is very much raised um, these days and people are more divided and uh, just quick to attack more so than I've ever seen. And mm. it's, it's very difficult because on one hand, I can just say, right, and I've thought this a few times, right, bugger all of this con controversial stuff. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to just remove myself from it. I'm going to just focus on the things that bring me joy and passion. Like I'm going to make music. I'm going to work on my business. I'm going to work on making cannabis content, talking to, to cool people. And, you know, that's great. It gives me so much happiness. But we talk about that guilt again. You know, I see stuff online. I see things that are happening. I see they're trying to move against freedom of speech in Canada and um, being able to trial someone before they've even said something. Um, I see all these things and I find it really difficult to not say anything about it because alarm bells, red flags, mm. things that will affect us all in the future. And so then I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to say something and I say something. And then, and then there's this, this whole anxiety piece around, okay, well, you know, who am I going to ostracize today by just saying, saying my truth, saying this truth? Um, you know, who is going to um, talk behind my back or you know, part of this is a little insecurity. I guess we all have it to some level and I can, I can realize that rationally, but you still kind of catch yourself thinking about it. Um, and then like, who's going to land in my inbox, you know, frothing at the mouth, um, wanting to, wanting to argue. So there's all that side of it, but to be fair, there's also been people that, um, I've been able to have great conversations with and you know some people have educated me on some things and 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 vice versa and so it's like those conversations that i'm doing it for um but it's it's just like a lot for your mental health it's way easier just to say okay i'm gonna just go all in on my own stuff and almost i try and justify that by thinking well if i just go out and live my best life you kind of lead by example mm -hmm. and you know maybe you inspire people then to think, well, you know, that guy smokes a lot of weed and I was told that it, it melts your brain, which by the way, I was told that today in 2022, <laughs> I was like, wow, like we're still on that one. Yeah. Okay. That's why I've got the um, headphones in. It's keeping my brains from spilling out when I'm smoking. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I just have to keep the room really cool. Cause like, you know, the ambient <laughs> coolness just kind of keeps it a bit more solidified. You know, it's hot days when the brain starts to seep out the ear. It's uh, no one wants that. That's why we go through so many cotton buds as cannabis consumers. <laughs> it's not dabbing. It's not at all got nothing to do with cleaning rigs or anything. Yes, it's cleaning all that excess brain we're losing. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sure they would have liked to have used that and, and the, the prohibition war against drugs. That could have been, you know, a good media piece. 
but that, that exactly what you discuss discussing there. It, it uh, I'm gonna do a selfish sort of uh, shout out here to my own podcast of the Simple Life podcast episode 71 just gone. We had uh, Phil Monk on, and we ended up discussing, and he basically said that he believes that this um, this novel virus is the new cannabis in terms of the way that the government and the media are handling it. There stating that something that yes potentially can be dangerous in certain circumstances to some people and they're over inflating it and saying that it's deadly and dangerous and everybody needs to be protected from it and they're using it as a way to create um new legislations and new powers that otherwise we wouldn't give them prior to the misuse of drugs act the idea of a government authorizing a police to break your door down in the middle of the night and, and throw you onto the floor nude and go through all of your possessions that was an act of war that was only done under wartime. Do you know what I mean? And that mechanism we're seeing now, I mean, especially you guys more recently, uh, I don't actually know which, which side of, of Canada you're in, but obviously with the, the truckers protests recently and the draconian use of seizing of assets and wealth is terrifying, really. Yeah, it is. I, I'm on the West Coast, um, which was kind of like this liberal, relaxed place up until relatively recently and you know as of today um you can't leave the country um can't go into restaurants or or any of these kind of places and so they've still got all of these measures in place we still we're still wearing masks indoors um and all of this kind of stuff and um early on we were all just scared and we all just didn't know what was going on so it's easier to just go along with these things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but now there's no plausible reason that I can see, um, from an objective data based, um, perspective, why are we, why are we still in these lockdowns? Um, I think that we here in BC, they will be lifted soon. You know, what's, what's odd is, um, the, the, the freedom convoy, the truckers, they were all proponents of saying, drop the mandates. Um, we don't want to be forced to um, take this, uh, this pharmaceutical product and put it into our bodies just to restore um, our full set of rights and, and not be second class citizens. Mm -hmm. And it got, you know, to the state where, of course, you, you, you heard Trudeau, um, Justin Trudeau, the, the leader in Canada, uh, he decided to invoke the uh, the emergency, well, it's the wartime measures essentially, yeah. um, for for a for a protest that was one of the most peaceful that I've ever seen. Um, there is a lot of um, vitriol and inciting of, of hatred, um, accusations of racism, um, neo Nazism, all of this type of stuff. Which, uh, like, I can't I can't just say, yeah, there were no swastika flags there like there, there were pictures of people with swastika flags there and you know that's that's a terrible thing um we don't want that for me those are the the fringe minority as mm -hmm. unvaccinated people are often called like we're not supporting that and these people turn up at all sorts of events you know they've been at pride events they've been at all sorts but in those cases it's never just detracting away from the actual reason for the protest yeah. and justin went in so hard on that he was so stubborn about that and as we saw you know freezing 
uh, of financial assets, bank accounts. There is a small bakery in Ottawa that donated $50 to uh, the, the convoy and they had their, their assets frozen. And then what happened afterwards? Within a week, restrictions were lifting in provinces. So he it's almost like invoked it this emergencies act. He sent the police out there um, on their horses to ruffle people up. And he said, these people are a danger to, to our society. He never acknowledged or sat down and had a conversation with them about the actual point of mandates. Um, are they backed by evidence? Are they backed by data? Do they do more harm than good? All of that was, was just gaslit, um, distracted, and just focusing on the hate and the division. But then what just doesn't make any sense, if you're digging your heels in that much, you know, a week later, the mandates are lifted in most of the provinces now. And, and now, of course, we're, we're talking about Ukraine. That's the, the vinyl on the record player now that, that, that we're all singing to. So it's just strange that he would dig in so hard and then be like, oh, well, these provinces are lifting their restrictions. It's a disturbing face. I mean, we live in a 24-hour news cycle and many pundits and actually quite a lot of comedians commented upon this uh in sort of the 90s and early noughties is that we're leading into a time where we're all just goldfish effectively and so a week is probably about right for the average normal that's it air quoted normal voting citizen that reads one mainstream newspaper watches one mainstream news channel what listens to the mainstream pop music watches the blockbuster movies reads the latest oprah backed book that's what they're they're expected to do they're expecting and they will want to see and want to participate in you know and it's so it's a week a week and then just go all right yeah so they were bad last week but there's so much they've put into them themselves you know through social media and everything else that they can't remember that far far away i can't frankly remember that far when i'm trying <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's uh we're somewhat fickle uh and mm -hmm. Our memories don't work too well, do they? We, kind of a, each time we recall something, it, it's like a echo of a memory, and things change, and we have a way of talking to ourselves in a way of avoiding ownership of mm. perhaps being misguided or wrong in the past. And and I think this is all perhaps happening at kind of like a subconscious level, so people aren't even catching it necessarily. I think I think yeah, it's it's ingrained human behaviour. I mean, there's quite an irony that I, I pointed out on social media the other week, and actually I think it's yeah, it's still there. On my coffee table on the corner there is Johan Hari's latest book, um, Stolen Focus, and it's basically about uh, he's st stating that the the big tech companies, Silicon Valley and and social media, basically created this this attention economy and how through them vying to create marketing and advertising space and the weaponization of data and what they're doing with that is then really they've, they've tapped into primitive human behavior cycles and, and neurological uh, feedback loops, etc. to basically, yeah, hypnotize us into needing this thing. Every now and then I'm trying to detox from my phone at the minute, so I, keep, I put it in weird places in the house, so I don't put it in where I'd not, so it's not just in the hands reach. And then I'll get this kind of pang almost like a like a, a missed lover you know when you haven't seen your, your partner for a while or a pet or something and you think it and you get this pang this physical pang for it and so i've been noticing more and more but the irony that um <clears throat> that we're pointing out on social media is that i've had this book for about a month now but i haven't had the attention to sit and start reading it do you know what i mean or proving its point <laughs> 
Yeah, attention is a commodity that these companies have got uh, very, very sophisticated, um, far more so than I think we often realize. And we're all completely addicted to our smartphones mm. in a way that I've never really seen with anything else. It's, uh, it's strange. I, I didn't go on my phone or social media. I removed like Instagram and Facebook from my phone for pretty much the entire month of January. And yeah, that, that felt good. I think it's important to take those like tech detoxes every so often. Uh, actually last year I went to this really remote place, uh, on, on Vancouver Island. There's no cell phone signal or reception. And so we were just without kind of any connection to the outside world for about a week. And this could have been a coincidence or it could have been withdrawal symptoms. I started getting an eye twitch, man. Like I started, I had an eye twitch and it lasted like three or four weeks. It was, it was mad. Right. Could have been something else, but it, you know, it felt weird just being totally disconnected for the first mm. time in, in quite a while. And I think it's, um, <clears throat> I'm almost using an analogy of, I don't know, energy running sort of through the brain and that we're, we're so overstimulated because of the, I mean, some of the apps have started challenging like infinite scroll and they're putting little breaks and they are putting in some minor tools to kind of slow us down. But like things like the infinite scroll and that doesn't allow dopamine breaks in the brain, doesn't allow our neurology to give in. And it's, we, we, we discovered this, the argument they made for addiction before, um, uh, Bruce K. Alexander came up with the rat park design was basically they gave a rat cocaine, a button that would give it cocaine and 90% of the rats would kill themselves with cocaine. because they were sat in a cage with a button that would give them cocaine. And it's like, we've, this is the human version of that. Except with this, there's no end. There is only the, in, the, the infinite scroll, the ability to, and without that, we've almost got this two tiered society that we, that we create and we set, we fortify the divide between every day of kind of we manicure our social presence, but then don't really care to take care of our physical presence. You know what I mean? Or we'll, we'll live in, take the idea of living in a squalid area to have a job that then looks good on a CV or in, that gives us access to something in a digital space or we're all become very, yeah, you're weird right. we're species. putting more, we're putting more care, love and attention into our social image and brand than we sometimes are to, yeah, like you say, our physical body and our spirit, our physical health and mental health. I say that as someone and... that I, I struggle with myself. You know what I mean? I'm literally, I'll wake up most days and then go, I'll just quickly check my emails. And then it'll be two, two o'clock and I still haven't put socks on yet. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm just, I'll, yeah. I'll just do this. I'll just do that. I'll, I'll just, you know? And it's, it's so yeah. difficult because if you just do anything, with this technology, like I said, because especially if you're actually actively using it for something, it gives you more and more things. And then obviously the more you use it, it gives you more things and the more it learns about you to keep you hypnotized and glued to it. So then, like you said, it is this, this, this pang, this, this hankering for this connection, but it, it's never, we're never satisfied. It doesn't fill us because it's not, it's, it's hollow. I don't know. It's like watching, I was going to say like watching porn when you're horny, but do you know what I mean? If you're craving the physical connection, you can watch an interpretive act of it, but it's not then going to give you the same reward. The it's same, empty. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's shallow. It's, um, yeah, I, I've had to really monitor my Instagram usage, particularly in the morning. There are times I, I just wake up and open Instagram and you just start scrolling. And 
I never feel good after that. It does not set my day up in the right way. Mm. And, you know, instead just like some meditation or just getting straight out of bed and going and walking the dogs or something like that. So it's a way better way to, to start the day, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. But that, that study you mentioned with the rat and cocaine, didn't they do one where they had the cocaine there, but they provided like a bunch of other stuff yeah, that was, for the rats, like was, some puzzles and, you know. That was Bruce K. Alexander, who I think actually might have, been Canadian or did the study in Canada um and yeah it was called uh Rat Park and so basically his premise was yeah if you put anybody in that situation they're gonna take drugs either sit in the cage and just have water and food and or have a thing that makes you feel better about yourself you're gonna use the thing that makes you feel better about yourself so he went okay let's give them uh a mimic of society let's give them a a good model to to live under so they had you know multiple sexual partners they had uh, potential sexual partners friends they had a good food source they had things to explore things to climb different textures different sensory stimuli in in the environment and all of them had access to the cocaine uh the cocaine less water and yeah the majority of them would try it at some point and some of them would use it in different ways they would notice uh it's just like they were socially excluded or whatever they would tend to use it more um, but they noticed that very few of them off their own accord would have or create then a dependency issue. But when they started to have societal problems, if they then some another rat came in and kicked them out of their rat, rat house, you know what I mean? And, and knocked up the missus, they're going to be quite sort of distraught with that. And they would then go back to then self-medicating. They would then only do it for a small period of time, get back on the horse as it were, or, or the rat, I suppose, and, and go back out there and try and find another partner or whatever and try and fulfill that biological imperative or their own social need. And so I think that is a, is a vitally important study that really shows what what we've kind of we're, we're looking at. There's another uh, model, and I can't remember what it's called. I think it's something 22 um and it's basically a guy around 20 i think it was 22 generations of rats and he was doing a social experiment on them to discover um the limitations of what happens when a population becomes too dense and it was basically modeled on human cities and the same apathy societal collapse um i mean if, god if you could have put those two studies together you would have basically seen rats acting as humans do you know what i mean it's we are we are the same things there are much larger mechanisms at play here than just um than just the access to a substance seems yeah entirely reflective of of human nature with those studies and yeah you can see it play out and i genuinely believe that most human beings are um essentially good we all have good and evil in us but i i, I do believe i have to believe that that the majority of, of human beings are are good but then you go on social media and you're pelted by things that you have to care about and there's only so much and then you reach saturation point and you know perhaps this is this is why we're at where we're at and you know everyone's talking about ukraine and not wanting to take anything away from that it's terrible for the people there you know and the the shows of um solidarity the people helping offering to take in refugees and whatnot I admire that, you know, that is a, that is an amazing trait of human nature and it should be applauded. However, not a mention for, you know, over 50 people, I think killed in a mosque in Pakistan a couple of days ago, like nothing, um, Yemen, you know, all of these conflicted areas that's been going on for years and the U S is the antagonist, nothing. 
And I understand like this saturation point that we're all at. It's easy just to see something from multiple sources, almost whatever you look online, seeing the same thing, then it's, it's easy to see, well, you know, that's what I'm going to care about. That's what's dominating the conversations and the narrative that's taking place. And it's really hard to start thinking beyond that, looking mm. critically at it, thinking about the, the inherent bias that may be in not only some of the news sources consciously, but, but also subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult. How do you try and like, where do you get your news sources from to try and combat this one voice that has almost become mainstream media mm. pretty much on, on all of the main issues moving in lockstep because anything yeah. else is, is, you know, wrong think and get censored. Yeah. 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 To, to, to think of Insoc and, uh, sort of 1984 there. Yeah. It's, it's wrong think it is. It, you are in the, the language of the world, I guess that we're moving into now or living under it is, uh, it's misinformation and it's like, well, is a misnomer when you think about it anyway, but yeah, the, the, the structure of an idea, um, or the structure of them being able to criticize you for an idea, I think is a bit ri ridiculous. The ideas should be debated and discussed and that which has most merit and most truth and evidence to it, that stands to be self-evident. You know, we have a great history of, of the entirety of humanity, the discourse and debate has given us everything that we have had people like to measure it as its glory of war and the rest of it it's like no we survive in spite of war not because of it and again exactly what you're saying it's, it's interesting that after how hard the global media went uh, the global legacy media went towards this standardization homogenized narrative for the global pandemic over the past two years that they then switched so hard onto this conflict with ukraine this is part this is just an escalation in what is called the russia ukrainian war this started in February 2014. This conflict never ended. With, with the Putin when he annexed Crimea and everything else, Ukraine was smart. They started to develop and understand what was happening here. Unfortunately, maybe not in some of the ways that were, were ultimately would have been as beneficial, but they were basically told by NATO what, what could have been and become NATO allies and European allies that, you know, we got your back, man, we got your back. And then they were goaded into this by that same press. You know, I mean, the, the imagery, if you look on the average newsstand, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the UK over the past week, it, it's in, it's insane how ubiquitous it is. Like you say, it's, I try to absorb news media from every facet. I will read something extreme, even like the old politics doesn't make sense anymore. In my own government now considers me a right wing fringe lunatic. My politics haven't changed. I've gone from being a left wing extremist to now a right wing extremist. And I didn't do anything. All I did was ask a couple of questions and just go, no, I'm not going to participate. You all do your, your mass criminality thing and we'll talk about this later. And a lot of people, I think, have had that kind of response to it. But that in terms of the saturation, as you say, if you live on Facebook or one of these applications, it's the algorithm weaponizes it back to you. You can't escape it now. Even like my Facebook, every, every uh, Monday, I get signed out without fail because that's when I share my podcast. I'm shadow banned beyond belief. They've, I can't upload pictures. I can't upload actual video files straight to the, the, my Facebook page because of the, the censorship. Does it come up with an error message or is it, it, it just doesn't have a video bug out. on the, you on the simple life section from my side of it. It doesn't have a video section. That's a real problem. 
So then, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't come up on it on Google. Uh, if you search my, so in the last, one of the last podcasts, I was trying to get the link to my Instagram page. So I searched, you know, Instagram at Francis Hall in Google mm-hmm. didn't come up like a couple other Francis's come up and I was like, that's, that's weird. So I searched in the brave browser, which is you know what I use now for all, all of my stuff, obviously the first hit. And I'm just like, wow, like this is, this is mad. The, it's probably AI. It's because yeah, you, 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 you said and... one of the words that isn't allowed. It's like my, my podcast limitations that are on it uh, are, are ridiculous. Let's say because I use hashtags like cannabis because we're talking about cannabis. We're using the word cannabis. But because then it's an illegal market here in the UK, it's, yeah, it's, it's restrictive and, and banned. It's it, it, Those mechanisms that we see that are stopping just you and I having little conversations in our own way, that they are on all scales and levels. So I think that's what the the opposition that people have to be mindful of here is that, I mean, of all things that really showed me, that could show you what is going on here is actually probably a couple of references in the second Anchorman movie when the news uh, uh, company that he works for gets bought out and the guy also owns an airline and they want to run this story about an airplane engine falling off and, you know, it's potentially dangerous. And they're like, we, we don't want to talk about that. We can't talk about that because that would harm our investments. The conglomeratization of international news media has now meant that you can't talk about anything. So they, they've created this this world unto themselves that is is beyond reproach. It's beyond criticism. You can't. I mean, Christ, there was a few things that we couldn't even say that we're getting you to instantly removed from all social media platforms last year, which I don't even know if we can say it now. So I'm not going to. And then you know what, what makes it even worse is when things that you got kicked off for have turned out to actually been true statements yeah. and any acknowledgement no apology no reinstatement not yet i know uh alex berenson he got kicked off twitter a few months ago and he's uh, that's in the states he, he's taken them to court and so that's that's an ongoing legal battle that i'll be watching with interest because you know there's there's got to be some accountability that comes through here as it becomes mm. more evident that, that a lot of information that was deemed dangerous, domestic terrorism, but any like scary word you want onto it. And people were punished for mm-hmm. sharing, not even explicitly just voicing concerns, um, which like you say, an open forum debate is, is, is just like, it's, that's absolutely essential. Well, I think so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, but you know, mm-hmm. just too many conflicts of interests. You've got like random billionaires, you know, like, um, Bill and Melinda foundation. They, they throw millions at, at media, uh, companies around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pfizer, you know, I don't know if you've seen the compilation of, of TV yes, shows yes, the in the UK, you're probably story, not as yeah. aware of it, but like the sponsored by Pfizer, it does mm-hmm. that have an impact on how, on the ability of, uh, media and, and news platforms to disseminate, uh, totally unbiased information in, in entirely. I mean, I, mean it's, I, I can speak to that from my own experiences with what I do. I've been approached by a hell of a lot of companies over the years that said, oh, this for that. And it's like, well, no, I, if, if I then take sponsorship from a CBD company, for example, and then want to criticize, I don't know, the efficacy of CBD or, or a certain branding or scheduling or procedures, etc., I've then got to be mindful that anything that I would have published, whether it be a blog or an article in a, in a third party media or speak of something on a, on a podcast platform or whatever, 
I could then lose that funding. If then my business model is contingent on that funding continuing, because again, that's what most news media is nowadays. You can quite easily get around the paywalls and the uh, subscription services for most of the online media sources. And they know this. They know people are using ad blockers and the ad companies themselves know this. So this is why data is not about advertising and marketing anymore. It's about social control. Cambridge Analytica and and, thing, and a few of the um, sort of big revelations showed us that. It showed us that, oh, my God, th this is not just about, oh, you like this certain toilet roll, so we'll brand you, pay you up with this company. It becomes far more sinister and dangerous. And so I think the media cycles themselves, as was pointed out quite eloquently recently by uh, Russell Brand, they are participating in this data mining and selling. So the whole point is I'm creating all these clickbait articles and everything else. That's they're, they're just, it's all about this data creation and, and social control and, and massaging narratives so that when they go to Ukraine this week, everyone goes, right, what's the Ukraine flag? Right. We'll get that out. And again, I, I don't mean to be callous. I, 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 I have all empathy from this 2 million plus that have been reported as now uh, refugees that have now left Ukraine. You know, some of the images, the, the videos, et cetera, that have come out of there, yeah, you've, it's hard to tell anymore what is real and what could be Photoshop, what could be from other conflicts, what's misrepresented for certain political uh, agendas. But then there are beautiful stories. Like I, I saw a news report from a Berlin train station and the thousands of people that were there just offering homes, that were there offering basic uh, hygiene products, they were offering food, they were just there gr greeting people with hugs, with handshakes, with just holding each other, just the... The, the the pinnacle of humanity is still then they have to still show that in some way yeah they'll frame it to a certain degree and they'll put like an applebee's advert or whatever on beforehand and but there's, there's still people want news they want information they want discourse and debate and discussion now more than ever so it's not just about flicking on a channel channel and hearing some talking head go through his carefully crafted notes that a team of 50 and a legal team and then a marketing and everyone else has gone over to ensure that the language is perfect and gives off exactly the the right um message and and, and triggers the right response in their key demographics you know everything's become so soulless manufactured yeah yeah but you're right there is that that goodness in in, in human hearts still and even if it's misguided and manipulated. Um, well, I shouldn't say misguided because showing that kindness is, you know, is always a good thing. But even if it's being manipulated, mm -hmm. it still gives me hope, you know, that, that we can get through this. Um, we can come out and repair a lot of the, the fractured relationships and the, the damage that's been done. Yeah. I kind of find ironic that, um, you know, it was not uncommon to see or hear people saying, at least here in Canada, that unvaccinated people shouldn't receive healthcare or, you know, send the unvaccinated, draft them in to, to go and fight the war. And at the same time, you know, the Ukrainian flag profile pictures, pray for Ukraine, same people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they realize that Ukraine has a pretty low vaccination rate. I think it's somewhere in the region of 30%. Are, are vaccinated um so it kind of just shows that it's like you don't necessarily hate unvaccinated people you, you may think you do because you're angry about what's happening rightly so but but you've been conditioned to blame people that are just like hey i'm i'm a little bit uncomfortable 
about what's happening here. It's it's, it's that, so, that scapegoating that we've seen throughout history. You know, obviously to not draw too much of a comp- well, I suppose there is quite a comparison, but I guess not to be too hypable with the comparison. If you then look at the 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 rise of national socialism in um in Germany in the, the fucking in the twentieth century, it's I worry that the idea that we can scapegoat one group that they can go, all right, everyone's confused, everyone's scared, and everyone's angry. We just need one group of individuals that we can put everything on. So whenever they say, "What? Well, right, tell us the bad things that happened," they did it. Yeah, they did it. Yeah, they did it as well. And just yeah, and just that's what they did. They channeled it, and this is what they've got so good at is 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 channeling collective emotions and, and collective um, intelligence and consciousness. You know, they've done it for. for century with things like the olympics and, and international sporting tournaments and stuff like that is they can build this fervor and this excitement over nothing so then the rest of the time i was like yeah whatever whatever but then when it starts everyone gets caught up in it because it's they've, they've manufactured and every year they get better and better at these mechanisms to disseminate response literally we are more vessel than we are captain to draw a terrible comparison yeah, it's yeah. become a form of entertainment you know like uh Russia versus Ukraine. It's, people have been supporting it like it's a damn it's, it's, football match. Because it's binary. This is what they, they've created wonderfully, is false dichotomies and, and binary debates to then go, are you vaxxed or not vaxxed? Mask or no mask? Mandates or no mandates? Do you know what I mean? It's Are you pro-immigration, anti-immigration? Nothing. I'm sorry, but nothing is, is a binary discussion. Everything, everything is, is a bell curve. And the vast majority of opinion and, and actual action and reality of everything falls within that bell curve. The extremes of, of any discussion should never be allowed to control it. But unfortunately, because of the way that the media has adapted over decades through conglomeratization, through this kind of creation of a, of a for-profit model, and then through deregulation in the 80s, etc., I mean, shit, if it wasn't for then the, the phone hacking scandals in the UK... Can you imagine what would be going on right now? What they would actually, the press would have done during the pandemics, uh, during the pandemic. They would have been tapping people's phones. They would have been outing people in the press. It would have got messy. Messier, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's appropriate. And then where you get to when all of this information is controlled, the flow of information is controlled very, very effectively, is you have people that think they're doing due diligence and reading multiple sources of news from different places. But essentially it's all, it's all coming off the same script. Yeah. And then you have the people that no longer have trust in mainstream media and, and in the narrative. And I think a lot of cannabis users are in that boat. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I want to get your opinion on this, like in the UK as well, but, um, because less so here in Canada, and I think it's almost because you've got legalization and some sometimes there isn't a full appreciation for why cannabis was illegal, mm-hmm. why there was a war on drugs, you know, how prohibition came about, what were the motivations behind it, and the, the decades-long struggle yeah. to overcome that. I think now that we have legalization, it's not perfect. I think, it, like we mentioned earlier, we're humans, we're fickle, we're quick to forget. Um, So there's this element of people that have an appreciation and an understanding of the history of cannabis and the struggle to get cannabis accepted as 
a safe recreational tool and an incredibly diverse medicine has been tough. Mm -hmm. And it's been the same kind of group of actors and motivations um, around the pandemic. Again, like pharmaceutical products over unpatentable natural alternatives. And so these people step away from the mainstream media, anything that you read from the main, and look, I still, I still get news articles from the mainstream media because I get, I get news from everywhere that I can, you know, I've downloaded, um, RT news, like Al Jazeera, just get as many different places as you can. And, and more so now telegram is becoming a very, um, useful and important tool so that you can follow individual people and you can get information directly from those, those people. So trusted sources, you're like going direct. It's like a decentralization of, of information essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's been a really important news source. And you realize that if people are just plugged into the mainstream stuff and they're not seeing this other side of it, which is, you know, difficult to, to explore unless you fully go through something in your life that causes you to start questioning mainstream media. And so where people were maybe all consuming from the, the same news sources. Now there's like been this divergence going on for years where people are consuming different content. Mm -hmm. And so then when you get those two people talking, it's like, whoa, what the fuck you think this, you must be this absolutely crazy person. And, you know, suddenly <laughs> we're, we're so far away on issues that we've tunnel visioned in on mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes you can find some common ground somewhere and you can, you can bridge that. And that's, that's an amazing thing. But, uh, yeah, oftentimes it's, it's just a mud slinging match. Yeah. It's unfortunately there are, it's, it's like Plato's allegory of the cave. And a lot of people don't realize they're still in the cave. So when we're trying to say, Oh buddy, you're in a cave. And I, what the fuck's a cave? What are you want? What are you on about? Sit down and, and enjoy the show. Like this is, this is like, come on here. And it, you, it's, but it's also very, it's very difficult to, to say something like that to someone without it being quite offensive and insulting. I, I get that. I get that. Um, and it's not ever meant to be obviously. Um, but it's in the same way that now people trying to, I don't know, say to me something and I can and dismiss it as, as we all kind of do. But I think that you have to come to a point of awareness and I think consciousness is critical thinking and critical thinking often is the remembrance of we don't know shit we're just little magic monkeys yeah you and i can talk to each other from the other side of the planet through this all this beautiful technology and shit but, but we don't know fuck all about life the meaning of it of why we're here of love why we dream you know like all of these grand concepts that, that we we live for that we create societies for the empires live and die for and yet we still, we're just, we're lost to all of these, these, these grander concepts because we're told, here's the world. You go to school and they go, here's everything you'll ever need to know. Go out, go to work. And then, yeah, you need to learn your coworkers' names and how to do your job, but that's it. You're done. Then you go home, watch TV and maybe listen to a bit of radio if you're cultured. Uh, and that's about, about it. You know what I mean? That's what they, but now because of the internet, it's, it's changed so fast from this idea of them, um, the assembly line of human production to make productive consumers. Do you know what I mean? So now yeah, I yeah, think of course, we're capitalistic society is always going to uh, optimize for, and, for this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's all it's trying to do now is going, all right, if we can create one narrative, if we just give his the one narrative and if you fall off that 
either through ostracization, through censorship and shadow banning or demonization, um, you'll be made to feel that you, oh, no, I want to get back in the fold. I want to just, okay, 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 I'll get back, I'll 100%, get back on board. A hundred percent. And I think yeah, that that's... No. That, and I felt that. You feel the pangs of it. You're like, oh. I just want to feel like so it's good. all good, like so, the, the tribe. And I think that's why when everybody went, you need to all do this or you need to all not do that everyone was like, well, shit, I can't go against that. And a majority of people went against the thing, but then there was still virtue signaling to others. It was this grand hypocrisy because people wanted to feel included. They wanted to to feel like the good guy because society and life paints it that everybody, there are good and bad. And I kind of, to go on to your, your sentiment from before, is I believe that there are no good or evil people. I think there are good and evil acts. I think that humans are innately neutral. We are born through epigenetics. You can turn off certain um, traits that would then sort of develop into certain things as you grow older. Um, but then it's the accumulation of your experience and of your, um, your your life that then manifests as to who you are. I have an expression of saying that if I was born, you raised you and thought as you, I would be you. I'd be sat there right now as Francis and everything you would say and think I'd be you. And then that realization to me is there's one consciousness that per pervades life. And it's then this experience that gives us this illusion of separateness. And if you can remember that everyone is just you, but they've learned something different, you, it's a hell of a lot easier to just be like, well, why am I being told, told by this, this media outlet to hate this person? And then just that critical thinking of being able to look beyond that, that that's often enough to give you this kind of lifelong curiosity, but it is often paired with a, a sense of despair, of depression, of anxiety, of loss. And I think that's where drugs coming in for a lot of people this escapism or this sense of wholeness you're seeing now with the, this new psychedelic and entheogenic renaissance is because you take mushrooms and go into the woods it doesn't matter who's bombing who or what cabal of individuals owns this or what family is doing this or what dynasty intends to do that you're just an an animate uh, sorry an animate uh, sentient being wandering through nature you are truly alive you know what i mean and i think that for me, I'm not saying that's a new source at all, but, but to returning to that source and reminding myself of what is life allows me to more critically view when are they saying World War Three, and you're like, well, do they really mean World War Three, or do they want me to feel like it's World War Three? That was beautiful, man, and I think that's a great way to think about it and realizing that yeah, we're all. We're all connected and you, you made that sound great in a way that for anyone that's taken psychedelics has probably felt that connectedness to nature, to the universe, to the mother source, but actually bringing that back from your experience and when some guy's going off mm -hmm. on some Facebook feed about cannabis using conspiratards and yeah. being a right-wing extremist and a Nazi and all this stuff. Sometimes it's just like trying to pull, pull that in and, and realize. And, uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's a good thing to do. I struggle with it, but, yeah. uh, it's, it's definitely something to try and aspire towards. Mm -hmm. I think it's the, the whole thing of whenever we go to get angry, anger is an expression of fear. I know that may, some people may be repulsed by even the notion of that, but if you really then think of it and, and anger response is you don't understand something you've misunderstood something you're, you're fearful of not understanding the situation so often the brain then fills in the gaps he meant this they meant that there is saying this and it's hard enough when you're in physical presence of somebody 
but then when you're just seeing the words, but at least then when you're with somebody, you can hear the cadence and tone of their voice, the inflection. You can see their, the physical expressions in their, their, their face, you know, how their mouth moves, their eyebrows, their eyes, you know, what their, their body language is. All of these things are part of this communication. But we've been tricked into believing that the only way that we can talk to each other and engage with each other is, is over SMS and over digital spheres and realms when it's, it's not. I mean, I'll, I'll happily have done and will do. I'll travel hundreds of miles for a quality conversation. You know what I mean? I'll go out of my way to, to spend time with somebody knowing that have that, that feeling because I've, I've sat and had 10 minutes with people that will be with me the rest of my life. Whereas, whereas there are people I've spoken to for hundreds of hours digitally. And although I, I relish their friendship and their connection, it's, it's not, it's not the same. I, it's just not, I don't want to say it's meaningful because that's not yeah. what I mean, but it's not as physical. Maybe it's not as tangible. Yeah. No, the digital will. I say it'll never replace it. I mean, I think it probably will well, replace Mark it. Zuckerberg it is replacing and it, but it will. <laughs> will you be Will you be dipping into that at all, or will you, are you going to be staying? I've, I've stayed clear of like, VR headsets and all of that sort of stuff. Like, if you feel, oh, you need to try, you need to try stuff. Like, tell you what, you come with me, and we'll take five grams each around a fire in the woods, and you experience my reality. I'll experience yours, sort of thing. But it's I don't know. If I appreciate it's a tool that can be used, but I think that unfortunately it's got manufacture flaws currently. So yeah, you've got this nice crafty knife, but they've not designed it with a good enough handle to stop you cutting your hand on the blade. Do you know what I mean? And the, before I started my activism work, I actually got off Facebook for a year. I was literally just like, I'm done, I'm done. Like uh, what do you not delete, but you, you like temporary pause your account. And so it's like, right, don't need this. I'm, I'm happy. I, I can, I can live with this. And experienced it a completely different reality. But then as soon as I walked into Product Earth in 2016 and went, this is where I want to be, this is what I want to do, um, I went, I need to use the digital realm. I need to use that space. And for the first few months, I was good with it. And I was like, no, I'm only using it for this and only between these hours. But it then creeps and creeps and creeps. And I think the same would then happen within this. these other tools. And I, I've, I've seen it with, um, with friends and TikTok, for example. Like TikTok is, is they've distilled all of the addictive qualities of all of the other ones into one app and it's gone boom, go. And because of the, the with their algorithms and almost lack of censorship work, it feeds towards, instead of extreme content, it seems to feed towards niche content. So you'll find your way to the community that is exactly you. And you'll find that sense that, oh, these are all my people. And you know, and I've watched people then reject physical actual relationships friendships you know family connections in lieu of they're not fictitious because they're real people but it's still it's again it's like i was saying before it's not that real connection they're missing the chance to live their actual lives because they're living a digital life and i'm not saying let's all be amish but there is a balance to be found and i'll admit i'm first one to admit as i said i'm having to put my phone in weird places because i can't stop bloody touching it even when i'm not looking at it i know i've gone through the the notifications it's almost like muscle memory I can feel my hand, like going, I just need to do that. And then I'll mm -hmm. oh, go back to that one. I'll oh, go back to that one. Oh, but then back to that one. Yeah. 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 I have that as well. But I think that the fact that you have an, a level of awareness for it and you're putting actions in place to attempt to self-regulate, I think that's, that's already on the right track, mm. you know? And so oftentimes for me, at least there's like the awareness there's the tools. And then the third bit, 
which often I don't get and you stumble and you have to go back to the first step again. The third bit is just consistency. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to do it in like a day or two or a week or whatever. But if you keep trying and apply consistency to that, then you know, that's, that's how you mm -hmm. get new changes to stick. Yeah. No, um, so man, we, we have had a, a, a fucking great conversation here, but I do want to move on to cannabis. So yeah, because, we should probably actually um, talk about policy. <laughs> yes. But just to, to wrap all of this, this conversation and this kind of like, I guess, political free speech, philosophical conversations that we've had. And in honor of International Women's Week, I just want to um, shout out to um, this woman that I've been speaking to. Her name is Kate. Uh, she is involved in the cannabis community. Uh, she uh, is living down in Victoria. She's a bud tender. She's doing some really cool stuff around um, helping cannabis stores uh, and their bud tenders to, to unionize and make sure that they're, they're getting fair, fair rights and good pay. Nice. And um, so shout out to you, Kate. So Kate's Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Um, we've come from very different backgrounds and we've met each other once and then kind of like talked a few times digitally over social media, etc. And so when the uh, Freedom Convoy and those protests started kicking off um, a month or so ago, there was a protest down there in Victoria. And uh, I hope Kate doesn't mind me sharing this, but I, you know, it was, it was a beautiful thing. Um, but there was a protest and Kate was um, not really wanting to go outside um, because of a fear that this protest would be violent, that there would be Nazis there, um, which for me, I hadn't heard of anything about that at this point. So I just messaged and kind of said, what's, you know, what's going on with this? I thought these were like all just peaceful protests. And I thought that they were um, just wanting an end to mandates, essentially, mm. was the, you know, the thrust of this, this event. And so we got to talking, you know, and I learned that there was, um, there'd been like some Nazi flags there, um, and stuff like this. And so, yeah, we just, we just started talking. We just started talking and, you know, right at the start of these kind of things, it, it's just, it, it can be very high tension. You're like, how is this person going to take this? And what are they going to say? And how are we going to interact? And I just, I just want to shout out to Kate for kind of like holding space for a conversation to take place. And, you know, I learned a lot. Um, and I think we were able to like get on the same page about things, which was just a beautiful thing, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of de denouncing any kind of Nazism, um, you know, calling out any kind of behavior that you see like that and just like making sure it's crystal clear that that is mm. entirely not acceptable. And that can be, that can be true at the same time that it can be true that, the media is is politicizing and, and um, manipulating things to maybe seem more prevalent mm -hmm. than they are and using it to tarnish a whole group of people with with undesirable traits. Um, and, you know, in terms of like the, the, the mandates and the things like this, you, we were all we were on the same page. And so it was just like this beautiful thing where two kind of people from very different backgrounds came together, held space for each other. And, uh, you know, we're recommending books for each other to read. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I realized 
I have so much to learn um, about Israel, um, about Jewish culture, Jewish history. Um, so yeah, that's been a cool thing, and uh, I want to shout that out. Nice, nice. So I just want to cannabis. So, man. Point out, so yeah, one thing: it's even if we can't get on the same page, we've got to remember that we're all in the same book. Do you know what I mean? That we can disagree with each other as long as one act or doesn't lead to violence words themselves are not intrinsically violent when used contextually in conversation they can illuminate dark areas of humanity and give understanding and connection that nothing else could so i think that's yeah it's it's wonderful that you were able to create that space for that conversation beautiful words again um yeah absolutely i think we we all um are having to try and learn to communicate with each other again in this world, you know, like it almost feels like that because everything's so digital and we've all been so isolated as well and, mm. uh, and, and divided that, yeah, it's like having to learn to, to hold that space and have those conversations. So, all right, man, I want to, I want to hear, I left the UK in 2019 and at that point, there'd been a lot of cool stuff happening. There'd been the proliferation of uh, CBD uh, into all sorts of retail, you know, Holland Barrett, high street stores, uh, online explosion. There've been some high profile activism. I don't want to call it that necessarily, but there was the Alfie Dingley. There was the Billy Caldwell, um, pediatrics, young kids with, uh, seizures, epilepsy, and, uh, their mothers fighting for, the right to use CBD. And, um, there was a big thing in the media about it. I think, was it Billy's mum that came and imported some CBD back from Holland or was it even, was it, did it have some THC in as well? Some sort of illegal cannabis product into the UK. And there was a big thing. Medical cannabis is being legalized and the community, the cannabis community was divided about it. A lot of people were saying, this is a great thing. Um, this is a a step in the right direction. A lot of people, um, perhaps more cynically saying this is going to make things worse. Nothing's going to really change. We're like two, two and a bit years on or so. Like how are we, how are we looking from there, Simpa? Um, well, yeah, we are three and nearly three and a half years into the change of law since the legalization, if you want to call it such of, um, uh, prescription cannabis or cannabis on prescription. Uh, since then, we still have only had three NHS prescriptions. Um, they were ones that were given in caveat or rather in exchange for uh, the kind of the changings of, of the, the law. They were, it was the least that could be done by the Home Office and the UK government, given the fact that they had basically worked together to, to sort of change the law. I mean, it's I'm not going to discuss kind of. <clears throat> why the law changed, uh, sorry, how the law changed. I think that's quite contentious, I guess, uh, depending on whose version of history you want to look at. Um, but yeah, basically the, it divided the community because we stood outside of parliament for the protests and we were promised self, the right to self-identify. We were promised grow your own. We were promised a system more akin to uh, California in the late nineties than what we ended up with, which was a private prescription system, which is probably now only gets what, 15,000 people that maybe signed up as private prescription holders. 
the first year, the first people that were paying for it, they were paying close to £1,600 a month prescription charges. Um, it's obviously improved now. There's, what, half a dozen, you know, maybe even closer to a dozen clinics, uh, several dispensaries that they're partnered with. And the UK is sort of seen as importing Canada, uh, can cannabis from Canada, from Israel, from Australia. Um, and it's a very restrictive system. The doctors are not very well educated whatsoever. They're still not really taught about en their endocannabinoid, the endocannabinoid system. They're still prescribing on a THC versus CBD uh, percentage basis. They're not talking about terpenes. The UK um, prescription cannabis system actually considers anything other than cannabinoids a contaminant. So we're in a very weird system at the minute. I mean, it's cannabis is available on prescription, but it's a non-licensed prescription medication. So it's not backed by any anything really which is causing a lot of contention in um the various fields of research that are obviously seeing efficacy not just through uh, anecdotal evidence um but also through uh research both domestic and international especially a lot of it being led by uh israel predominantly actually um but yeah it's things are not really moving forward very well there's been several recalls on products there has been a lot of uh, misinformation, a lot of incredibly angry patients on Reddit and other forums. Um, there's been a lot of uh, allegations of corruption, allegations of cronyism, nepotism, and just a general sense of, well, not nepotism, sorry, uh, cronyism, corruption, and uh, a general sense of just uh, jobs for the boys, as it were, kind of attitude. And um, yeah. People are not necessarily happy. There's a lot of people just getting a prescription to have a little legal pot so they can go put, you know, Dave from down the street in. Um, there's no real movement on grow your own. There's still a demonization of THC and, and your, your so-called recreational or adult consumers. There has been slow movement, I think in part, thanks to probably my uh, persistence to modify the language to move away from medical cannabis to calling it prescription cannabis. Because um, I've obviously been championing this argument that if you say that, well, this is medical and this is cannabis, you're saying this one can't be medical, um, have medicinal benefit, which is just bullshit. All cannabis has the potential to because it would supplement the endocannabinoid system as long as it's got cannabinoids. Um, so, yeah, there's still obviously a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of um, sort of false uh narratives that are going around that are creating these 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 binary groups that actually believe they're each other's throat or should be each other's throat when they're being set apart by lobbyists and by vested venture capitalist groups that are set to make far more money from their division than their unity with regard to cbd it's been strangled off in a massive way the uh food safety authority in the uk took regulation of it uh, last year and started a licensing program for it Last I checked, there was only a handful had got through, but this represented some like 50-odd thousand products. So basically, it's a cartel. The handful of people own CBD in the UK. I mean, they already did through white labeling anyway prior to this, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's not good, but it's not really being enforced. It's very much a postcode lottery. Some shops are still selling CBD flour uh, here in the UK and being left alone. Um, I know actually... Yeah, I can say this anecdote, as long as I don't mention who it is. Uh, I do know of a company in the UK that was taken in by the UK Home Office and, and uh, Taxman and was basically told that they're going to be getting their CBD flower products taxed at 30% and they'll be allowed to continue to sell them as smokables. 
Uh, I should probably chuck an allegedly in there for legal reasons. Um, <laughs> so allegedly, who who contacted that? This, this is a bricks and mortar store. Uh, this was a very large business. It was a wholesaler, and they were contacted by the UK taxman and basically told that we know what you're doing. We look at all this evidence that we've got. We want retrospectively thirty percent of your business because this is a taxed commodity, um, and then we'll, we'll leave you to it because the UK is broke, man. The reason that things are happening right now with the, all these county lines and everything else, it's not about moralizing or save the kids or any of this. It's because the UK is currently losing hundreds of millions, if not billions a year. You know, they're, they speculate that cannabis is, and is an illicit market in the UK is worth like two and a half to three billion. You then look at all of the other drugs and everything else combined. They're, they're having to try and prioritize these big growers not to stop drugs, but to stop that money leaving. Whereas then they can leave domestic operations because... Dave down the street's paying his electric. He paid tax on his newts on his feed. You know what I mean? He's then the money he's making from the twenty bags he's selling. He's putting meals on the the, the food on the table for his kid. You know what I mean? He's spending that money in local shops. It's staying in the economy. So we're in an interesting yeah. Time well, for- I mean, we've seen how much money can be generated from legalizing, right? Like Canada. So, I mean- absolutely raking and it that's in. only at what 55 to 60 percent something like that they're actually only 55 60 percent of all of sales in canada are illegal regulated so i mean yeah. it's huge money huge money yeah i don't know i don't know what the exact number is but i think it, it is getting harder for uh the legacy growers to to make a living like i know a guy in my neighborhood who's been growing through his medical license like that's kind of how it works in canada um you get this medical license and you can get it to grow a whole bunch of plants hundreds and i think people can pull those licenses and do various things with them so a lot of product that was getting grown and going into the black market is is being grown legally through these uh licenses but I, I guess it's illegal then to, to probably be to be selling it. But it's just this whole area where it's kind of allowed and that it's pretty hard to to stop that kind of thing and, and track it and whatnot. But from the legal side of things, they're, they're making an insane uh, amount, which is good on one hand. But there is also the argument to be made that it's stifling small businesses, a lot of the heart and soul of the culture uh, of these growers over the last few decades in Canada are the ones that are struggling the most, either on the side of being pinched in the legacy market or being pinched in the in the legal market because yeah, you've got excise duty, you've got um, you have to pay a certain amount for the uh, wholesale and service of the the BC government um, storage. They're the exclusive wholesaler and distributor. So yeah, it's 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 tricky, and you end up in a place where uh, only the large corporations survive, and that's really what I've been seeing a lot of in the last few years. Is you know, people are fed up of working these shitty jobs, and so they think, you know what? There's the internet, there's e-commerce. I'm going to start a business. You've got this explosion of small businesses, which is an amazing thing. I'm a huge fan of that. And now they're just being squeezed even up to like pretty big businesses, but you know, any, any, but the huge corporations, um, you know, the biggest in each industry are just like massively consolidating their wealth. And, you know, I'm a small business owner and I've, I've seen it like it's, 
it's it's difficult and mm. uh, and the costs are there and yeah, ooh, the, the, it's tough it's a tough environment yeah there needs to really be a ring fencing for a craft industry for protections of of, of uh businesses businesses that operate at a certain level because it, it's yeah i see it in the same way with uh before we saw international gangs now really ramping up in the uk and putting collectives and growers out of business left right and center um you you would have people happy at whatever level they were at you know, Dave would maybe have his, his two by two tent and he'd do pretty good on it. You know what I mean? And he only smoked his little bit. So he had his customers and his regulars and it was, there was a day of everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And it just, things functioned. And then all of a sudden there was like, people got into the, what they call it? I call it the gang gang lifestyle. You know what I mean? And they're all just into just this false narrative that is presented through the, the mainstream media of the, this is how you make money. If you've grown up social, socioeconomically deprived, if, you, we, we've screwed you out of every alternative. Here you go. You can go sell drugs and become like this, this Scarface, this, this gangster type. And it, it's, it's a loss to it. And I think that then that is the same mentality that's represented in industry. And so they're the ones that are going to succeed. The gangsters who then, oh, in, in the suits that are like, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, we can do business and whatever. And as soon as they walk out that door, they're working out ways to screw you over. You know, I've heard all kinds of horror stories coming out of like the Californian industry of companies like grassing on other companies, getting them raided, getting them in trouble federally and stuff, but finding their competitors and putting them out of business, getting their media, social media accounts reported and shit. All kinds of just bullshit stuff that is a, a new form of corporate criminality. It's crime, it's criminal behavior. Whereas the people who are in the legacy market that are criminalized, they can't compete in this legal criminal market because they're not criminals. And that's, that's generally how I feel with this. It's the people that have good intentions are getting screwed because oh, it's good good intentions are not profitable in a corrupt world it would seem that is yeah that's something i've been thinking a lot about over the last few years running urbanistic and you know there's times where you can see decisions and you could opt for the not ethical decision and be like okay i can make some cash here or you can be like no that's not going to sit right with me don't do it and yeah, there's definitely like a monetary price to pay, but um, you keep your principles intact, which mm -hmm. is a valuable thing. But when you're being pinched and we're all been pinched on all sides and they're really trying to squeeze down that middle class in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and, and everything, you know, like the inflation, house prices, land prices, food prices, gas now as well at such an astronomical price. Um, you know, everyone, everyone is feeling that and uh, it's difficult. And they're probably going to bring in the, the UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income, which is traditionally something I've been a, a huge proponent of. And I think it's an amazing thing. Unfortunately, it's you know, in, in Canada, it's being proposed along with a bill that is it, it entwines it with uh, a digital mm -hmm. ID kind of social credit system. Yeah. And Unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. that's not a good thing. So yeah. you know, UBI on its own, no strings attached. U like, UBI let's cash just support people. Fuck yeah, UBI cash all day long. Yeah, but these these yeah. program they're talking about programmable uh, digital currencies, which basically means that you can't you can't spend it on what they don't approve. And as we're seeing with what what Canada did just there, or with what we're seeing with certain countries, just all of a sudden going, no one turning cryptocurrencies off. 
the argument of these decentralized currencies. So yeah, it's all well and good, but you still need to be able to use that currency at the end of the day. And if institutions can just refuse it, are you really decentralized with, with your, your finances? Are you really more protected than a run on the bank? You know what I mean? Well, it's taking something that people don't fully understand, myself included. With, yeah, you know, me too. I'll, I'll say that as well myself, yeah. <laughs> Be suspicious of anyone that does. Um, <laughs> they're taking these things and then they're just changing it a little bit into something that isn't. You know, it's essentially they're building something that's extremely centralized um, at a worldwide level. But it'll, it's, yeah, under this ploy that it's mm. like... Yeah. It's, it's the crypto, you know, the ledger of it all as well. Of then it's oh no, it's all cool because it keeps a, a track on the ledger, and everything. Like, the ledger is cool. It's like you are aware of what China are doing with quantum encryption and computing. Once they truly, once we truly crack the first quantum uh, supercomputer, any of the old world encryptions that we've got become child's play to this thing. So everyone running around cool. doing whatever with drug trades and and human trafficking and whatever else. I mean. We've known for a long time, you see, we like uh, HSBC and other big international banks getting caught up for laundering huge money for cartels, etc. Like, what do you think most of these currencies are doing? Everyone's running around going, well, it's NFTs and we're doing this. And it's, yeah, I appreciate that is part of one thing. But yeah, in the same way that the majority of cash is probably doing something naughty, the majority of this is doing something, well, I'll say naughty, you know what I mean? Something that is disapproved of by the establishment. Yeah, but I do still think, you know, it's a very interesting area. Yeah. The fact that the banks are all high, they're all hiring, have been hiring people to work on, on crypto stuff, you know, governments are trying to regulate that alone tells me that, um, it's got there's, legs. There's something in yeah. this. And I know a few people that are working in, in the space and I actually do believe them when they say that they know a thing or two about this because, mm. uh, they definitely do. And there's some, Pretty interesting use cases like uh, the Web three. Yeah, Web three point nine, yeah. like decentralized. Yeah, there's uh, a, a, lot of, a lot. Really a lot of these things. Yes, in terms of it gets around certain censorships and restrictions of then the owners and operators of say the websites and the domains. But if then a central government still can turn off your power via a digital power grid, if they can turn off your internet, then it's this it's the same thing it's that at least a currency a piece of paper even if it changes through inflation you fit you can change a physical tangible thing for food in in the event of a famine and a war you can you know i mean you talk about yeah. drugs drugs and sex in the uk was valued over 10 years ago in this country at 11 billion pounds a year you know what i mean so what's gonna happen in a digital currency well do you really think that the sex trade is just going to disappear the sex workers are not going to operate and exist the drug trades are not going to operate and exist it's we're never going to, I don't ever think, be able to get away from it having cash. But I think we could, they'll then try and make it a reality that anyone that has cash is almost to be dealt with as suspicious. Or they're upper class and you don't worry about them because they're upper class. But, you know, everybody else has got cash there. Yeah, you got to be careful of, you know? Yeah. It just, yeah, it, it, it worries me because, like I said, anything that's an, another tool. And i didn't re i'm clearly getting old and i didn't realize i'm 34 this year and there are certain things where i'm kind of like can we just slow down a bit can, can we just like just, i'm not saying stop anything or the progress but can we like i've still got things i want to talk about from like five years ago but everyone's all just moved the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing it's like 
Yeah. As soon as I put my head down and start looking at crypto, because I haven't yet, but as soon as I try and actually get my head truly around it, I guarantee you when I look back up, there'll be six new things that I've got to then go, oh, fuck, and running after them as well. And it's just... Things are moving at an exponential rate. Yeah. There's there's no doubt about oh. it. And we, we picked up just at the... Yeah, I miss, I miss the yeah. 90s, man. I, I miss, like, I, I remember watching... It was chill, wasn't yeah. it? It was chill. Before, before uh. the digital, whenever it was analog and it just stuff ended... Like I remember as a, I had a phone, man. I had like the Nokia thirty two ten or thirty three ten, man. Yeah, it had Snake on it. Yeah, Snake was sick, but you wouldn't fucking use it in front of anyone or like you know you'd use it if you were just like on the bus on the way to school yeah. or like something like that. You know, the odd time they'd be out skateboarding, like getting up to shit in the woods. Mm-hmm. Oh god, you know, yeah, it was fun, man. It was good. I, I, like video games were just like kind of shitty in the way that they were. They were amazing, but they weren't like as immersive or, or as addicting, perhaps yeah. as as uh, they were. Ju- they were just they enough now. to add your own level of like an augmented kind of fantasy and gameplay to it, so you can just suspend enough of your reality. But you'd never get more than a few hours because of the quality of the screens and the lights before LED and all LED technology and all the rest of it. It's yeah, you can you can see the the small progression in just our lifetime. I mean, I, I genuinely worry for uh, for my. Um, I'll learn a new word, but I can't think what it is. Nibblings. Nibblings is the term, collective term for niece and nephews, <laughs> like siblings. Nibblings. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I, I worry about word. them because one of them is shit. I think just turned like 13. Um, so I may be wrong on the age, though, but he's, he's definitely ended into the teenage years. Um, but yeah, his generation growing up in with all of this, they've only ever known smartphones. They've only ever known social media. At least, like we we had Bebo and MySpace, and most of that shit got got lost in the ether. Whereas everything they've ever done has been recorded, tracked, traced, catalogued, clarified, and created into a profile that's then been sold to create data sets that then project their future careers, their p- p- political opinions, foods that they like, football teams, everything and everything. Fuck me, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's a very scary difficult challenging landscape for parents out there right now yeah do you give uh, them the phone don't that, you give that them cannot the phone. be easy to deal with yeah well a bit of both i guess you set some boundaries and you just deal with the inevitable fallout that will arise from from placing those boundaries mm. like you know I, i'm I, i'm aware i'm probably massively uh oversimplifying that but uh well, as, as a general I suppose rule that if you are a parent that then has that control it's easy to do it but the issue is i think more so than ever we accept our own hypocrisy and others allow us to accept our own hypocrisy so then there's a parent stuck there on the phone you're always on that bloody xbox you never never off it just constantly glued to their own shit and they can't see it because their 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 addiction Mm -hmm. their dependency their negative and um, maladaptive behaviors are normalized and they're hyper-normalized within their own microcosm of a, a community, whether it be their, their house or their, their their home, sorry, or their work environment or their community, their country, their nationality, whatever, you know, the larger sort of groups. It's it's weird that we don't, or we have these glimpses of, to hold ourselves accountable. So this thing with me leaving the phone around, there's still days where I forget. And then I'll remember and go, bollocks, I've been touching this for two, three days. And some in me goes, well, I failed. I, I may as well leave it now. And I'll oh, like, just spend another day staring at it and, it's yeah that to me is 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 more power i'll admit i've taken most 
most drugs over my lifetime. I have been a, a very much a connoisseur of various chemicals uh, across my, my lifetime. And I have never had s such a problem and, and been aware of feeling in my own brain, physically feeling something in a relationship with, with the drug like a phone. It's like nothing else, man. Yeah, agreed. Well, what's, what's been your most majestic experience? Which, which chemical Ooh. of the many that you've tried would you, um, would you attribute that title to? Well, I think the, they all mean different things at different times, and some of them are so unique. I mean, I've probably had over 100 LSD experiences, and they're never the same. They, they have the same flavor, I guess, for a bad way of kind of phrasing it, as in they have the same similar quality and feel to them and but they all have been meaningful in different ways so some of the most terrifying trips that i've had on lsd have also been then the most sort of meaningful whereas then some of the most pleasant experiences i've had on say certain um cultivars of sal of uh, not salvia of uh, changa um then it's been useful and, and well wonderful sort of experience but then it's not it's not necessarily carried over do, do you know what I mean? Um, but I, th I think... Yeah, I often feel that the most challenging experiences are usually the most rewarding ones. But sometimes, for me, it's fun to just dabble yeah. into like the DMT world for a bit of Changa for 10 minutes. And you're totally right, even though it doesn't have the longativity necessarily, it can just be like a little, mm. little reset, you know? Yeah. I think I mixed uh, DMT and Salvia. I've, I've done it a couple of times. The last time I did it... DMT and salvia. Yeah. So that sounds it's that sounds insane. Very, very different. I had a mate trips at me. We went to Derwent Reservoir, which is a giant water reservoir up in the, the northeast of England, uh, in the UK. And he knew what what I was going for. And I went, look, I just just want you to sit with us, just cause I want to be near the water. Something in me just went. I need to go somewhere where there's a large body of water, and just experience something. And the only thing that I, I really recalled from this sort of experience is this sort of yellow triangle. And I, I smoked it and I started looking for something and I'm sat and we're sat like on this, these stones at the edge of the water. And my mate's like, you okay? What are you looking for? And I was like, I don't know. I've lost it. I've lost it. And I was still looking for it. And then all of a sudden I kind of went, oh, drugs. And then my brain kicked in and went, you're, you, you, you're doing drugs. And I was like, ah. And so I just laid, kind of laid down and then put like, my arms on my chest. And it was like this, it felt like a download of just symbols and just geometry and just mental, just raw. And then just, it was so unbelievably confusing. But then as soon as it was kind of over and my brain kind of, I felt like everything kind of zoomed back into myself. There was this absolute acceptance of anything and everything. I mean, I've had an incredibly trauma, traumatized uh, upbringing and, and, and young life, you know what I mean? Not so much as an, as an adult, but definitely as a young child. And although I've dealt with that trauma and I've, I've accepted it and gone to a lot of therapy, et cetera, there's still obviously the bits that carry over and it's still, it, it came back obviously, but in that, that kind of moment, as I zoomed into myself, there was this contentment, this deep, deep contentment of, of sobriety. Do you know what I mean? Of that moment of kind of, all right, all right. And it's something that I kind of deal with as, as a cannabis consumer, you know, I, because of the access I have and, and the kind of circles I operate in and whatever else, I could just consume day and night and never have to think about it. Do, do you know what I mean? And so moments like that remind me of the, the majesty of sobriety. 
Do you know what I mean? And I think those are the things I found most useful in psychedelic drugs is yes, the experience themselves is often wonderful. Um, but it's the, the kind of the hangover, this positive kind of hangover afterwards where your neurology can, you feel it reset, you feel, and you can kind of, I get it. It's almost like a voice in my head that'll go like, I'm really tired. I'm going to bed. Like, Brush your teeth first. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do that. Oh yeah. I'll wash my face. Oh yeah. I'll just, I'll just tidy that. You know, there's, there's impulses to just better yourself and to just um, give yourself that extra space. Sorry, I'm sure how ridiculous my hair looks on this camera. No, it's looking good, brother. Oh, I mean, it's yeah, I, uh, I I get that. It's like an afterglow mm. and everything's just easier. It's just like a reset and mm. the negative stuff just doesn't bother you as much mm. for a bit. But I think um, that kind of comes from a, I, a point of privilege because on the other side of it, there's a lot of chemical experiences of drugs that still have very bad associations to them um, that were beneficial to me that I found that an actual escapism, a full numbing and suppression of of trauma and of, of difficult memories also allowed me to get through parts of my life that otherwise you know, I mean, it's, it's anyone that's, that knows me knows that I'm covered in a thousand scars because I spent a majority of uh, my youth, again, with a real self-harm problem, whereas then the, the ability to use a chemical alternative rather than a self-destructive impulse really allowed me to then sit with these things and then using psychedelics to explore then that pain. So I think there is a, a trajectory in, and all drugs have merits in, in different situations and it's we have to be aware of drug exceptionalism and uh, snobbery they're going over oh, well, my drugs fine you know but screw your drugs you know <clears throat> so it's like the psychedelics allowed you to process things that you couldn't process with sobriety yeah i mean i the uh, with the allowed me to appreciate sobriety more uh massively but uh, in terms of then when I was, I guess, in my mid to early 20s, um, psychedelic compounds really helped me re-experience re trauma, not in the way I've done with MDMA or with, I don't know if you guys call it Mandy over there, um, and, and that kind of just, <laughs> and just, and just talking with people at events and festivals and whatever and kind of gauging those connections and sharing your traumas and your, your, your fears and whatever. Um, whereas then the psychedelic experience allowed me to, all right, I've locked the door, Cat's fed, he's out of the way. I've got all the tools I need for the evening in terms of like, if I get too fucked up, I've got kind of caps and some oil. I've got, you know, a little bit of weed if I want that later. I've got coffee, I've got whatever. You've got what caps? Uh, like can, caps. can of caps. Can of yeah, caps? Yeah, like cannabis oil capsules. Just something like to sedate, like- To help yeah, you. Yeah, to get, so you want to get the other okay. side of it, so sedate out. And then, yeah, so I plant the- Because what, what if, I, if I take cannabis while I'm on mushrooms, the cannabis like, phew, kind of reignites mm. and re ups me when I'm on mushrooms. So I'm surprised you, yeah, you use that, but again, everyone uses, has it's, different effects yeah, it's about with it. Having the different kind of relationships. So I'll take, uh, most psychedelic compounds in isolation. So not smoke for a period leading up to it and then take, take the substance. But then once I've kind of gone through a period of it, I'll then quite often and have yeah, get quite curious and add other substances so like smoke DMT at the peak of a mushroom experience, um, or sort of mix, uh, Mandy and LSD and things like that. And obviously not your first time and obviously be exceptionally mindful of set and setting, but by able to be, by 
developing a better understanding of these compounds and how they were affecting me, I was able to build basically therapeutic plans for myself where I'd be like, all right, it's Thursday tonight. I'm going to fast a bit to, to, to improve the, uh, the uptake of, of these, these compounds. You know, I'll, I'll take some additional CBD to increase the, the cytochrome P450, uh, enzymes so that this increases it, you know, I'll lemon tech the mushrooms or whatever, you know, you'll, and then in those kind of really detached, um experiences have these kind of how would you describe it like uh not a reenactment but a a show a kind of uh a, a, pan, a pageantry or a play a performance before me that enacts out i guess my life but in such an abstract way do you know what i mean that it just the scenarios of, of my trauma and of, of, of the things that i would struggle with would come to would come to light and sometimes, yeah, it would be kind of these, these David and Goliath-esque kind of heroic struggles of, you know, your cliched kind of, uh, as Carl Jung would speak of, like the archetypal narratives and, and whatever else. But on the other side of it was then kind of really beautiful, wonderful, simplistic, innocent versions of things. Do you know what I mean? And, and experience them without or with fractured and um, kind of synesthetic, synesthetic emotion. So it's like separate and experienced in really different ways really allowed me to open up wounds and, and it just spilled the thing and then go, oh, that's all it is. Do you know what I mean? And it was, and it'd be, but rather than it just being in the controlled sense of using like sort of MDMA or, or another, uh, stimulant like that to, to get into that space and be able to then speak it out with another, it allowed me to view me. Do you know what I mean? It breaks. I like in that controlled setting of breaking my psyche and having to sit with myself and having those almost multiple conversations of, Oh, I'm on drugs. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. And then this comes in, you start looking at that and start thinking about this and you can lose hours just in your own thoughts. So that is a vital part of being human to me. It's, it's, it's the curiosity of self. If I can't be curious of me, how the hell can I be curious of anything else in life? I often feel it's like my childhood self mm. emerges. Yeah. Free from any bias or judgment or just like pff, fucking life grinding you down like free from all of that yeah and you're just curious you have wonder at everything that's going on around you like yeah. you're seeing it for the first time and then that's mixed with revelations yeah revelations about the universe about life about love and then see, those ones often kind of fade into some intangible dreamlike memory where it's like trying to keep water in a sieve as yeah. you as you sober up although the underlying messaging of them definitely remains but then there is sometimes i get revelations like things going on in my life where i'm just like oh like you know i've been stupid about this or like why am i worrying about this thing mm -hmm. like it's, to it's totally irrelevant or silly to, to worry about it and those things are really nice because you, you you can hold on to those and yeah. i think that's why it helps people end of life. It's been researched a little bit, people with like terminal illnesses and just like coming to terms with it and being able to live out the rest of their days with a, with a much improved quality of life. Um, that's an amazing thing in Canada. Like we're seeing ketamine clinics pop up. Um, I think there's, there's some MDMA stuff. There's psilocybin clinics and I'm kind of conflicted because on one side this is an amazing thing it gets it into the mainstream narrative people start talking about it more so people become more accepting of it 
and they're combining the uh, chemical components with the therapy elements. Um, so the set and setting, they're, they're trying to look after that. So that's brilliant. My only problem with this is the price. Um, it makes it inaccessible for, for most people to be able to actually use this and, and take advantage of the um, clinical settings and processes that they're developing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was looking at the one ketamine place in Vancouver. It's $5,000 for, I think it's a 12 week session. You go there like once a week and just do therapy. And I think you take ketamine maybe two or three times throughout that through an IV. And, you know, it's, it's pretty significant amount of money to, for someone to, to spend on that. And look, Hey, it's probably very likely it could be worth it. And if you have the money, like that's, that's a great thing, but it's almost like the people that may need it most are probably the people that aren't in a position to yeah. pay yeah, for I mean, that. If you're depressed and you've got six grand and you're depressed, and you've got six bucks that's a big difference you know what i mean it's at least one of them is eating better is probably going to be living better yeah we have the ketamine clinics here in the uk and i think they're about five grand for yeah i think it is three treatments but you go in for different therapies around it and it is obviously yeah built as a bespoke program i mean my hesitation comes towards the attempt to pathologize or standardize the mysterious some of the most important psychedelic experiences are the ones where I don't know shit. I, you're just you're just gone, especially with someone like with DMT. Of just, I'm not. I don't believe in a anthropomorphized sentient god. Not a not a grand human in the sky making decisions on the same timeline that we exist on. I don't believe any of that crap. That I say crap. I don't mean to belittle anyone's opinion. Sorry for that. Um, but what I do believe is that there is something there is, there's too much when you look at everything that there is an intrinsic intelligence there. And that isn't to say that there is consciousness and will or whatever else there is mathematics. There is beauty. There is this repetition of, of certain, I don't know, tangible elements that, that make it up. It's, it's almost simplicity. Simplicity over time has created this ever weaving complexity that is our reality. And whereas these compounds and these, these experiences can make us go, wait, there's just like these thousands of things and they all come together in different ways and make different things. And it's, I think those experiences as well, like, I don't think you could quite have, or I don't, I don't know enough about the settings of these clinics, but I feel that if you suddenly started shouting about you being Jesus, I mean, fuck in this room, five of us sat one night and we, we were just joking and you know, we take a joke to an nth degree on LSD about a head of lettuce. And coming up with all the puns of how it was that this lettuce was this, this, the the godhead was the lettuce head, and it just we just you, know, you just roll with it, you know what I mean? You just take the piss and have, have fun with it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, have you heard of the game of life? Uh, the board game. No, it's uh, all right. Let me. Because I played, I played, I played the game, I game of life as a kid, cause... and I, I quite enjoyed that. A little spinner thing. You got a little car, and you put little kids in. You know, they go to college and shit, and you pick all these weird little cards up. Oh really? Never, never. Okay, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's some. Let's give uh... myself a nostalgia there. All right, let's see. Ooh, here we go. Can you see this uh, this video here? I don't know. Okay. Let's let's play this.
They are the points in space, sometimes referred to as cells. So this this is like a grid. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading this book at the moment, um, Alien Information Theory. I'm going to try and get the author onto this podcast to, to dive into the whole book because it's absolutely it's fascinating. And he's comparing the universe to like this grid and a very simple program that, that exists, this game of life. So this grid represents like the universe and these grids can, each individual square can be on or off. <laughs> so like black is on and white is off. And essentially we'll keep playing this, we'll put the volume down. Um, there's yeah. like a rule based thing here where uh, you define a set of rules and say like, okay, for this, individual square if there's two squares around it that are on um or more then it will turn off and if there's not then it'll turn on and there's this simple set of i'm hoping it shows what this becomes but there's this simple set of rules there's like four different rules um that define this game of life when you play it and you run that program yeah i don't think this one's gonna uh, let's see. It, it basically comes up with these crazy, intricate mm -hmm. patterns, and um, it starts creating entities, and those entities start shooting off like individual little chunks, mm -hmm. and then those things collide with um, with other things. So it, um, yeah, it, it basically becomes this semblance of um, of life. Mm -hmm. Here we go. So it, uh, it's not. But yeah, I can't find this anything is, good, uh, unfortunately. But... Mandelbrot, the mathematician in the Mandelbrot set um, of fractals, uh, mathematical fractals, and what this show of, of simple iteration of, of mathematical equations create ever complex uh, physical patterns. And again, people have then pissed around with, with uh, I say pissed around, I don't mean it was a derogatory there. <laughs> people that have consumed and, and taken part in um, the consumption of uh, various um, syntheses of DMT will have experienced high geomet geometric shapes and fractal experiences. And I think that that is probably the closest thing that we've got to, here's a sentence, the language of God. And I think that there are people obviously in the unified unified field theory that are trying to work this out. Obviously you've got people through um, quantum mechanics and uh, everything with string theory and everything else. And people, are, it gets so abstract, but it's because we can't understand it in the, the language and in the, the reality that we've created yet. These substances allow us to in, even if just in those moments, when you are on a DMT experience, you, you fucking know, you know, everything. I'm sorry, but it's like, this is why people come back saying that they've, they've lived on a higher realm they've experienced, they've spoken whomever or whatever. It's, it, it's a reconnection to that, that source in some which way. And I think as some people have known this over time. I mean, what the research we're starting to do now around DMT's, um, use in the body of being sort of created in the gut and then being used in day wake cycles, uh, the circadian to help with the circadian rhythm and then around dreaming, um, is really getting very interesting because modern science still doesn't have a clue and philosophy is still struggling to tell you why the hell we sleep. We can register what's going on and give you a map of your, your, your REMS and everything else, but we don't know what it means. We don't know what it's doing. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know that we, we, we can, cracking at them and, and do all these other things, but we still don't know shit about what it is to be human. No, we really don't. And you know, like some of the quantum experiments they've done where 
It's like whether something's being observed. So oh, like the, the two, the two split how, experiment of things how the like particles that. Yeah. behave. That's that's pretty mind-boggling. Yeah, like science. Science is amazing and it's great. And there's been many advances that have helped us live longer, better lives. Mm. But once you delve into this stuff, it's it, it's like the science that we have established and the protocols and the methodologies only get us so far, like so much understanding, but we need to evolve different ways of, yeah. of doing this and evolving our understanding of, of all of these plants and chemicals. Mm -hmm. And we have to get out of the, the, the benefits the dogma be... of traditional thinking. There's a scientist by the name of uh, Rupert Sheldrake and he wrote a book uh something delusion i think it was called and it basically um he spoke of i don't even think it was in that book but it was one of one of his books he spoke of the idea of what if everybody from basically copernicus was wrong just slightly and then the next day got it wrong slightly and the next day got it wrong slightly after a few hundred years science would be based on the last guy's work and they would get corrected and obviously with the observation and peer review you'd have consensus of that scientific idea but what if they're wrong because nobody is testing basic hypothesis oh we, that was we figured that out 200 years ago it's fine it's like yeah but i'm not saying necessarily the laws of physics have changed but like our understanding of what physics are of what humanity is what the world is of we and i think that it, this hubris of humanity to be like uh we know it we're cool we got this we're next 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 it's like yeah you look at oppenheimer with the whole thing of the the atomic bomb and it's like should we have done that? We could do it, hell yeah, but fucking should we have? Yeah, there's been a lot of technologies and things found um, that would definitely question uh, the the established records of history. Uh, there's there's been lots of examples, and Graham Hancock yeah. is yeah, he's done a lot of work in this area, and he's come out and said that archaeology and uh, the, the people that work within that space, it's difficult. They don't want to accept uh, that there would be a different version of events, even when like, evidence mm -hmm. starts to surface. People don't want to retract things that they've built careers on. And it's all, it all comes down to human nature, it's I suppose. It's scary but, though, because yeah, it's, it's... imagine if they were curious. Can you imagine if every 40-year-old was as curious and as passionate as a fucking four-year-old? And you know what you said before about touching back to your inner child. That's that's what I feel that we do with these substances. I feel that we can sit with ourselves and that little, we, we sit and we put our hand on our own shoulder and we comfort ourselves for all of the pain, the hardship of life, of, of being human, of finding love, of finding a career, of caring about characters in films and books and, you know, worrying about climate change and warfare and famine and, and plagues. And there's, a, there's all of everything to fear in this world, but that we don't have the six o'clock, his five reasons to give a shit. Do you know what I mean? There isn't a good news channel. It's we're, we're inclined towards negative behavior, I think, biologically and anthropologically because it's kept us alive. The scary thing, I remember the scary thing, because that's scary. Whereas the beautiful thing, oh, yeah, the sunrise, yeah, that happens every day. And so, yeah, but you still need to go experience yeah, the God's survival God mechanism. Thing. Yeah, so I think more of us are surviving than than living. And cannabis, especially, is, is an opportunity to, by nature, take an opportunity to go, rah. And then these other substances, again, different tools for different with different uh, hammers to crack different nuts, you know what I mean? And, and once we understand mm -hmm. 
that again, the same, it's, it's not quite the same in terms of how cannabis works with the endocannabinoid system, but different people have different tolerances and different reactions to different compounds and different set and settings will result in different reactions. You know, a lot of us, in fact, I'd say all of us as human beings carry trauma, whether it be from a cultural PTSD because of the way we have to live in, in, in the Western world, whether it be from sort of a collective, um, uh, inherited guilt or whatever else, or it be through poverty, socioeconomic situation or whatever, we, we all carry this. And that's, I think, why humans drink, because that's a way that we can be conscious and this part of our brain is still, yeah, 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 but the body can't feel it anymore and it just escapes it. Whereas these substances do the opposite. They make you feel it, they make you see it. And by doing that, you grow stronger, bolder, braver, able, more capable to face the next time life gives you another one of those little roadblocks, you know? Hell yeah, man. I feel you a hundred percent on that. I think it's about time to wrap this conversation up. Um, but simple man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks uh, for coming on and you know, we'll have to definitely catch up again in a couple months and, uh, and do another one. Uh, make sure you check out Simpa's podcast, the Simpa life, uh, on Spotify, on all of the, the platform networks, some really, really, cool content, good guests on there. Um, yeah. Thanks a lot, brother. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man.